Mildred Jeter was not a white woman. Richard Loving, all agreed, was a white man. So Virginia state law not only rendered their 1958 marriage illegal, but also required a penalty of at least a year in prison for it. Circuit Court Judge Leon F. Bazile chose, though, to suspend their prison sentences if they agreed to leave the state. After a few years of exile, the Lovings sought legal assistance to let them return home to Virginia. Today, our speaker will be focusing on the suit Mr. and Mrs. Loving brought against the Commonwealth, a case that eventually made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Lovings challenged the conceit that the state could tell two people that simply because they did not share the same racial identity, they could not marry. And if they married, that they should be imprisoned for doing so. This talk will explore their tangled biographies on the way to a breakthrough Supreme Court ruling in 1967, a ruling whose echoes can be heard very clearly in the politics and jurisprudence of today. Peter Wallenstein is a professor of history at Virginia Tech, where he has taught for more than 30 years. Before that, he taught in New York, Canada, Japan, and Korea. His teaching has brought him a number of awards, including the Alumni Award for Teaching Excellence at Tech. In addition to his role as a distinguished teacher, Peter has long been a leading historian of Virginia and the American South. His various books include A History of Virginia, titled Cradle of America, which was a, a uh, quadricentennial publication, if you will, um, coming out at the 400th anniversary of, of Virginia. A History of Virginia for fourth graders, his so-called short readers, and path-breaking books on public policy in 19th century Georgia and on conflict and change in 20th century Virginia. His newest book, Race, Sex, and the Freedom to Marry, Loving v. Virginia, is the subject of his talk here today. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Peter Wallenstein. So, good afternoon. Oh, we already did that, right? Thank you all so much for coming out today. And special thanks to the Virginia Historical Society for hosting this event and for, in fact, giving a good home to one of the more important sources that I used in constructing a portion of this, uh, this book. I heard something. I woke up a little at first. There's this bright light in the room, a strange man next to my bed. Two, no, three men. That's not exactly the voice of Mildred Loving. It's not exactly the words she's used to describe that experience. But it gives us an idea of the terror of that night, the sudden intruders. And it's a prologue to what came after. The other day I ran across a brand new book just last week on the Lovings. It got the names right, Richard and Mildred. <laughs> I got the kids' names right too, Donald and Peggy in Sydney. I just didn't present them in the right birth order. It's so hard to get the facts right on this story 
And we see that time and again, books published, obituaries when Mildred died, films, time and again, the most elemental facts get wrong. I try to do it right. I try. The core story, Mildred Teeter. You know how to spell that? It's a quiz question. J-E-T-E-R. A lot of Jeter's running around in Virginia, some white, some black. That's in a binary world that classifies everybody as just one or the other. Mildred Jeter and Richard Loving, that was his name. They grew up in rural Caroline County, so an hour's drive northeast of here. It's in a part of the world, I remember most first going there, there's a canopy of pine trees coming up both sides of a narrow road, and they meet in the middle. The yellow line has long since gone away. You see two houses at the same time, you know you've come upon a settlement. <laughs> it's not really near almost anything else, but Central Point sports a fairly imposing building, St. Stephen's Baptist Church, where Mildred went all her life. And the cemetery across the road from, from the church gives some clues about the people and the families from the area over the years. And the cemetery, like the church, has a tri-racial constituency, white, black, and Indian. Now, on June 58, as Paul just said, the couple got married. They went off to DC. Richard thought they couldn't get married in Virginia, but he thought that they certainly could in DC. Uh, he also thought they probably ought to get married because Mildred was pregnant. This was the 1950s, you understand. A Dear Abby story that I made. I didn't make this up. I just didn't I researched just when it happened. But somebody wrote Dear Abby back in those days, before the pill, and said and expressed concern about uh, a member of the family who just had a child and well under nine months after the marriage. Abby wrote back and said, not to worry. Child was on time. <laughs> The wedding was late. <laughs> so they went off to DC to do what so many young couples did in those days. They got married, they came back, and all was well, or at least for a month. Now, Mildred called herself on her marriage license, uh, the, the form she filled out in DC. She, racial identity? Indian. Years later, when she wrote for legal help, she identified herself as part Negro and part Indian. Now that's how he, she described herself. It didn't matter how she described herself. Under Virginia law, Racial Integrity Act, this woman is a colored woman. It does not matter, the details. And Richard, well, nobody ever suggested he was anything other than white, though how could anybody actually know? So he could not marry somebody who wasn't white. She couldn't marry someone who was. They did. and that led to that terror-struck moment that I opened up with, this teenage bride, late one night, not very far from here, some 57 years ago. Without which, we'd have no subject of today's talk because no one would have ever heard of the Lovings, and there'd be no case the Loving versus Virginia, but here we are. In January 59, the trial came. A plea bargain drove them out of the state, exile. 25 years, don't ever come back together during that time. And so they moved back to D.C. It wasn't that far. They could live there. The law wouldn't bother them. But they'd been banished. Four years passed, 
and more. Mildred had had enough, and she wrote a letter. And looking ahead, June 1967, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that these convictions must be overturned, and the Lovings were free to live in Virginia, go public, permanent, free. And Richard now built a house, a brick house. It still stands there. The one he had meant to start nine years earlier, now he could and did. The ruling in that case transformed the law of the land in ways that reverberate down to the present. Those are the core facts. But it's not where I started writing this book. I started at the end, of course. I went to Mildred's funeral. It was an extraordinary weekend. I went back to Blacksburg, drove back up the mountain, kicked on the computer, started writing, and 5,000 words later, leaned back, and I thought, yeah, that pretty much captures Mildred, how she's been understood, the events of the weekend, and how a lot of people whose lives had intersected with hers had come to know her and what they had to say. But I looked at that book, and it, at what I had just written, and it looked an awful lot like an epilogue. Now, you know what that means, right? The epilogue comes at the end of a book. Then you have to write the book. <laughs> you have to write the book before the epilogue can do the work it was designed to do. Now, I'd already written an earlier book on interracial marriage, on race, law, and marriage. And it came out a dozen or so years ago, 2002. Tell the court I love my wife. I still like the title. It may still be my favorite book. I'm thinking I love all my children, but yeah, I, that may still be my favorite book. Those are the very words that the Loving's attorney, one of the two lawyers, Bernie Cohen, told the justices of the Supreme Court that Richard had told him to convey to the, to the court, Mr. Cohen, just tell the court I love my wife and that it's just unfair that I can't live with her in Virginia. The earlier book came out, good deal, good many years ago, and I told the story there briefly, more fully than any of the other many stories I told of other couples across time and space from Maine to California, from the, eight, from the 17th century to the 20th. That was the story that gave the title to the book. It's the way I started the scene at the very beginning of the book, and it's where almost near the end I tell the story in more detail. Um, and I thought when I finished that book that, as with all my books, I've done that now. I'll go away and somebody else can come correct me or fill in the details or do whatever else. I thought maybe I was done and I pressed on to other big topics that were also dear to my heart. But there was also this glimmer in the back of my mind that maybe somehow I would, somehow, I would want to come back and I would want to tell a family history, not just a legal history and not just bare bones, but a community, a family, a couple, and a case that they brought. Not all that stuff that I had to do in order to situate their story in the first book, but enough, but only enough. Now, I quoted in that first book from Mrs. Loving words that she conveyed to me in our very first conversation, and they made it into the first book. They made their way into the second book. I kept going back to that scrawl and discerning something else I'd written down. I hadn't been able to work out what it was last time. It's pretty graphic. It's pretty direct, describing the scene. And then she went upstairs to her mother's bedroom, sat on the bed. Moms can't fix everything. Mom couldn't fix that. 
So maybe I would write another book. Mildred's funeral forced me to do it. Going to her funeral gave me the stuff, got me started. I had an epilogue. I needed a book. Now, my book emphasizes five main characters, clearly Richard and Mildred. We've already met them a little. Judge Leon Bazile, Hanover County, right next to Caroline. You go right through it on the way up to D.C. He had served as a circuit court judge since the year the U.S. entered World War II. I wanted to say one, but he hadn't been there that long. But back in the time of World War I, he'd been working in the state attorney general's office, and he would stay there for many years after he returned from the war. And then he served three terms in the House of Delegates. This guy had been around within the realm of Virginia politics. He had vast experience, and he'd left his imprint on public policy in any number of ways. He was a force, and he was a figure of some cultural dominance as well. He was a historian, he loved music, he did all kinds of stuff. But we don't know him for any of that. We know about him only because of about five words he uttered fairly late in his life, right? And God Almighty created the races. Well, let's read the whole thing he wrote, or the full passage that's all it's ever given. Almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, red, and Malay, and he placed them on separate continents. That was deliberate, you know. And but for the interference with his arrangements, Bazile never explained what he might mean by that. And but for the interference with his arrangements, there could be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. And so I suppose, and we should guess, that the state of Virginia had a duty to enforce God's chosen design. Often misplaced, that statement is frequently said to have been voiced at the original trial in January 59. Normally, you don't get a judge explaining the resolution to a case at that point. And in fact, he actually wrote these words six years later when the Lovings had brought, successfully brought the case back into court. And now he had, he had the obligation, he had the opportunity to explain in tremendous detail. These are 12 pages in longhand. They type out about the same where he, voice, he, he articulates the history of the law of race and marriage. And he sees no possible basis on which that Lovings could bring a successful case on constitutional grounds. The rules are clear. This is simply his punchline. And God created, God Almighty created the races. For my purpose today, though, the most striking thing about Judge Bazile is his own mixed Marriage. <laughs> now, the papers of Judge Leon Bazile here at the Virginia Historical Society include a just extraordinary collection over a period of years. Bazile had a problem. He had a prospective bride. She understood he loved her. She was pretty fond of him, too. But she insisted, month in and month out, that Leon, we can never be more than friends. We can never marry. Why? It's really important to know about Bazile that he's from Virginia and that his prospective bride was from Alabama. Uh, that can't be it. Oh, say, okay, maybe this is it. <laughs> he's a Catholic and she's a Baptist. And that caused huge problems. 
The only way they resolved these problems on his terms in the end was when his draft notice came during World War I. And she came suddenly to recognize that he might well soon be going off to war and he might well not be coming back from war. And suddenly she recognized in a way she never had how just vital to her happiness he was. And they got married. So as a married man, he went off to France where his great-grandparents had been born. So he's still a Catholic, she's still a Baptist, but now they're married. Now, I did bring a script, and I'm checking it ever since, every once in a while. I want to be sure I don't leave out all the good stuff. <laughs> and I can't find one of those pages, so I'm going to have to ask somebody to rewrite it for me and bring it up here in a hurry. <laughs> now, one fairly recent account of the loving story. I did mention they all get it wrong, right? One fairly recent account says about the judge that he, quote, imposed the maximum penalty on the couple. Well, yeah, I guess 25 is more than one to five. But as he saw it walking into the courtroom that day, he knew his discretion ranged all the way from a minimum of one year in the penitentiary to maximum of five, and that was it. If they were guilty, and it was hard to imagine that they weren't, then that was the discretion he had. And yet what he did was exile them. So he left them free, but only up to a certain extent, right? They weren't free to stay married and in Virginia. They were free to stay married. They were free to stay in Virginia. They just couldn't do both. But if he didn't impose the maximum, if he didn't even impose the minimum, then what was going through Judge Bazile's mind that day? As I write in the book, and I'm going to quote here. We can imagine Judge Bazile peering out at the scene that day in the courtroom, and just maybe he mused on his own mixed marriage and long, happy family life once he and his bride broke through the barriers that their different religious faiths had posed. Perhaps the patrician Leon Bazile even saw in the plebeian Richard Loving something of a kindred spirit, not bound by other people's rules of love and marriage, not deterred by big challenges in such matters. And finally, the Loving's two lawyers. Both came on the scene several years in. Between them, they put Judge Bazile in the fix that he found himself in when he had to justify the original sentence and therefore vented that language we've just heard. In June 1963, so more than four years into their exile, we could consider it a promise of a fifth wedding anniversary present Mildred gave to herself. She said, I got to get help. She had more than enough. She needed it fixed. Mom couldn't do that back then. Maybe somebody out there could. And who she wrote from her exiled home in DC was Bobby Kennedy in a nearby office in the US Attorney General's office. Could he help? Could the civil rights bill that was in Congress at the time in 63 potentially help? And the letter came back, and she, you can, we can imagine her opening it, looking at it, hopeful, apprehensive, reading, no, can't help you, but you should talk to the people at the American Civil Liberties Union. Maybe they can help. So short story, this is how she comes to know Bernard Cohen, a very young lawyer who's had no experience whatever in constitutional law cases, no experience whatever in federal court. 
No experience doing a whole lot of things, but he had some experience. He had a credential and he was enamored of Mrs. Loving in particular. He loved the name of the case that he saw potentially going to the U.S. <laughs> Supreme Court. <laughs> and though he couldn't see how he could possibly win, he couldn't see how he couldn't, he, he possibly couldn't, right? It, was, it had to be a winnable case. Now he describes how he had to find a key to break through the door. It was locking him out. He found a key. It turned out he needed another key. And he's just absolutely stymied. So he's visiting with his old con law professor at his law program in D.C. What drove him to see his old professor was a new letter from Mrs. Loving. Dear Mr. Cohen, hope you hadn't forgotten us. This has been a year since her first letter. So he's fairly desperate. But he's hopeful. The professor's a wizard. Maybe he's got the solution. And maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But what happens that day is very different. Another, even younger law student from the same professor, the same program, who'd off, been off doing battle with the forces of the civil rights movement in the Deep South. He was in federal court all the time. He was on the front lines of the movement. He knew immediately what you do. You go into federal court. The two of them teamed up. Cohen made the case possible to that point. Hirschkopf makes it possible to carry it to a successful conclusion. But we don't know any of that yet. All we know is that here it is. It's summer 1964 now. And we found a new possible way forward. Now, if we fast forward to the case itself, we'll wrap back to it. They win. We know that. Right? So I'm not withholding any vital information. Right? <laughs> and now they get to live the permanent, the new brick building. Central Point is their home. Once again, raise the kids on the farm out in the country. All of these things that Mildred had dreamed about. She's back with her mom and her dad. She's back with her, her cherished sister, in particular Garnett. She's back where she belongs. All is good, and they live an idyllic existence, and it lasts for a grand total of less time than they'd been married they thought, before the court said they were. They're heading home, she and her husband and her sister, to Central Point one night, and they got run into. Now, when Mildred described it, the scene struck me. I, I knew that Richard died at the scene. And she said about the driver that he jumped a stop sign. So what I gather, that he jumped from the left side, right? But you do your homework. You go to the site, and you look at it, and you say, no, that's not where the road is coming in at all. It's coming in from the right but it's almost head on. I don't think he jumped a stop sign. I think he never even slowed down for one. Slammed in it, not quite head on. Mildred is seriously hurt. Richard is dead. They're free to live in Central Point for the rest of their lives. She now is free to live in the house that Richard built, but without Richard. That's the first of the two downers that uh, the film The Loving Story ends on. It's designed to shock, and of course it does. Now, what do we know about the driver? I'll just tell you this. He is, con he is uh, charged with DUI and manslaughter. He is convicted of both charges. He is fined for both convictions. There is no jail sentence involved. 
Mildred does take him to court. Bernie Cohen will be her lawyer in a civil suit wrongful death. She does win. That helps, but it can only help so much. Now, if we think for a little while about the significance of the court's decision in the case that Mildred brought, when the court handed down that ruling, 15 states, including Virginia, 15 states plus Virginia, my arithmetic falters, still had such laws on the books. It was still a crime by some definition of interracial marriage in every one of those states to get married. And as a rule, the rules that Virginia had, you couldn't get married in state, but it was the same crime with the same penalty if you went out of state like they did to DC, got married and presumed to import that marriage against public policy in Virginia. Now, suddenly when the court rules, it's no longer a crime anywhere. It's just not just the lovings who are free to come home. It's any other couple, no matter what their racial identities, no matter where they live, they can now get married. They can now live anywhere. They can now move anywhere. But it's not just the crime that goes away. It's more than that. The court went further and threw out all the related laws. Now Virginia had to recognize that marriage. Of course they were married. Now all the couples who had sought marriage licenses but had been turned away could go back. No. So in fact, the court could have just done the first of those two things. That would be the narrow gauge ruling. And courts often try to take the narrowest. They try to tailor the facts. And, and we deal with the immediate question before us. But we don't reach beyond and beyond and beyond. And the court clearly was far more ambitious in its rendering of this, its decision in this case. Now, what the court could have done is not just hypothetical. One of the members of the court, it's always said about the case that the ruling came down from a unanimous court. And in a profound sense, it does. It did. That is, the, courts, the court said these convictions must be overruled. There's no question about that. But it was not unanimous in one major material way. Potter Stewart thought that's all the court should do. And he wrote, as he had in another case three and a half years earlier, it is simply not possible for a state law to be valid under our Constitution, which makes the criminality of an act depend upon the race of the actor. That's what he had to say on the subject, right? So he's going to throw out the convictions, but he does not go off and take up down all the rest of it. So even if the court's other eight members ended the opinion that Justice, Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, these convictions must be reversed, the other eight, in fact, took the case much farther. So if we review what the court actually did and its immediate and then longer term consequences, why it was so much more than it might have been and so much more than has been portrayed in one leading piece of popular culture, well, let's look at that. Many of you may well have seen the so-called documentary from a few years ago, The Loving Story, even here, right? Probably a lot of you have seen that. It tells a captivating story. It relies heavily on two fabulous sets of visual images from the mid-1960s. But its command of the facts is otherwise limited throughout. Its sense of history, its uh, sense of historical context is by no means reliable. The film spends most of its time, and this is good, tracking the story of Mildred and Richard and then the three kids across time. And it can do that through these images. And then when it reaches the Supreme Court, it does precisely what a documentary ought to do. Ever since the 1950s, the proceedings of the court have been recorded. 
So there are, in fact, recordings where you can hear the actual argument, the oral argument, both sides presenting their case, their preferred outcome, and the case being argued, uh, the questions that come from the, from the justices. And we get to do that. We get to hear it just as if we were there on site at that time, something that Cohen and Hirschkop were. Mildred and Richard stayed away. They'd hear about it later. But the film does not tell well the rest of the story. What was at issue as to how the court might have ruled does not come up. The film rushes past the ways in which Loving versus Virginia was such a breakthrough decision. It even implies that the ruling, though clearly it benefited the Lovings, maybe didn't do very much for anybody else. How do we know that? The very last line in the film, projected on the screen, tells us flat out that not till the year 2000 did Alabama end its ban on interracial marriage. Now, I'm not saying that everybody walks out of the theater having seen that film, convinced that Alabama continued to enforce the laws. But I can tell you, having spoken after any number of screenings, that the question always comes up. It's a matter of deep concern. How could Alabama get away with that? And the answer is easy. Alabama didn't get away with that. So what do I mean by that? What we have here is deception by factoid. Shock value is a punchline that distorts what in fact happened. True, the voters of Alabama took until the year 2000 to bestir themselves to remove from the state constitution the ban that had been there for a great many years. The ban had been put in the state constitution precisely so no weak need subsequent legislature could come along and decide to get rid of that law. No renegade state judge could say, well, it's not in the constitution of the state of Alabama. It doesn't hold, right? You constitutionalize it. You do something real. You make it far harder to change. And you also, and this is not secondary, you also symbolize your commitment to that position. You make clear just how important it is to you. Now, voters in South Carolina could have been the punchline to the film. They took almost as long. They took till 1998. So they were fairly progressive. They got rid of it two years earlier. <laughs> but if, in fact, loving actually had traction, then the constitutional ban in Alabama had been a dead letter for how many years? Give or take 33? So what actually happened when we look back in the immediate aftermath of Loving versus Virginia took, we could say, two tracks. Cases already in the courts in June 1967 went a very different direction than they almost surely would have in the absence of Loving versus Virginia. One of these was a case in federal court in Oklahoma. I'm sorry, a federal case in Delaware where a mixed-race couple had gone to get a marriage license just a few months earlier. And within weeks of the Loving ruling, the federal court issues its decision. In light of Loving, how can there be any other rule? Right? Delaware statutory law no longer holds. It's been overridden by the Supreme Court of the United States of America. So the couple gets its license, and I meant before I came over here, I was thinking as I drove across the Blue Ridge, I should have looked them up. I wanted to see are they still happily married, but I can't tell you that part. <laughs> the other case comes from Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma is a southern state. How do I know that? Because it had a law against interracial marriage as late as 1967. That's one way I know this. Well, there the case wasn't criminal law either. There the case had to do with a 
dying in the absence of a will, leaving property behind, it gets contested because some member of the family says that you had no valid marriage to begin with, so how could anybody inherit under it, right? Very soon thereafter, the state Supreme Court of Oklahoma rules in precisely the way that it never had in all the history of Oklahoma. It overrides all previous says, of course. Race has nothing to do whether this was a valid marriage. Of course, the property can be inherited under it. Case closed. Okay, so here we have two cases already in the courts. Neither one of them criminal. Had the reach of the Loving versus Virginia ruling gone only to criminal law, these cases would not have been affected, but they were in fact deflected in a radically different direction and had exactly the opposite outcome of what they would have had, had Loving versus Virginia not been handed down, not been handed down the way it was, and in fact not been handed down when it was. Uh, but there's more. You've heard in recent, the uh, past few weeks about local court officials upset about what it looked like they might have to do with regard to marriage licenses going to couples they didn't approve of. Well, much the same kind of thing happened. The language employed, far as I can tell, had nothing to do with religion. It had everything to do with race, and it actually had to do with does local law still govern? Whose rules must I abide by? So people conflicted, uncertain about what path they should take. Remember, you've just seen Potter Stewart. Had he prevailed, had his position governed, those cases would have not gone the way they did. But what about Alabama? Well, let's not get to Alabama yet. Um, let's see, Florida. The Florida case went to the state Supreme Court. The others all went, and there were a lot of others, went to federal court. And there the Florida Supreme Court said, well, you know, loving governs the outcome. Of course, this couple must get the marriage license that they other qual otherwise qualify for. Now, the vote, the vote for the, from the Florida, the Florida Supreme Court was five to two. So you have to think that Judge Bazile had two clones in Florida, right? They were making no concessions to the new regime. They knew what the laws were. They, they saw nothing that had changed. Five to, but the couple got the license in Florida. The other cases all were from federal court. So let's see now. And again, I've lost a page, so somebody's going to have to run up here and Give me its replacement in a real hurry, but I don't need that, do I? Within weeks, and then scattered over the next several years, state after state after state went the resolution. Arkansas, one upper south state, the others are all deep south. In Mississippi, in Georgia, state after state. Louisiana, I want a marriage license. I've been told I can't have one. You go into federal district court, those folks have heard the news from Washington, D.C. They issue the ruling, the license gets issued. It took a while. The last of these cases I've just outlined, Georgia, 1972. Mississippi was 1970. Arkansas was 1968. So it's scattered over several years. It doesn't end all at once. First of all, you have to have somebody go on to get a license. Then you've got to have them turned back. All we're seeing here are the cases where the, there was somebody turned back. We don't know as a rule about other cases where that never happened. Uh, and then it's got to make its way through the courts, and sometimes that's fast and sometimes not so fast. But what about Alabama? Now, a couple wants a license. What we have here is, uh, well, the short version is this. I tell it in detail in, this, in both books, but I'm going to cut along. The short version is this. 
It's 1970. It's the very end of 1970. And federal court says, yeah, you got to do this thing. The local official had declined. The state attorney general's office had weighed in on his part. We're going to hold on to this thing as long as possible. Turned out long as possible wasn't very long. But think about the arithmetic here. How long has it been since Loving till the end of 1970? It's something under three and a half years. That's appreciably less than something under three and a half decades. So 2000, deception by factoid. Yeah, it's true and it's interesting, but it's not, not very interesting and it's not very true that it took until 2000 for the Alabama ban to go away. So by 1970, you could get a license. You did get a license, loving rocks. Now, some of you I know are interested in, so what since then? We've got what? How many decades now since the mid-1970s? Hmm, about four. So if, in fact, loving reverberates down through the U.S. Supreme Court of June 19, no, not 19, 2015, how do we get, how do we connect interracial with same-sex? It took very short order for the first same-sex couples to go into court seeking to take the logic and, lo and language of loving about the freedom to marry, about how important it was, what a crucial piece of American freedom that was, to argue that it should apply to same-sex couples as well. The first was in Minnesota. This is 1970. He loses. Minnesota says that was mere race. Well, that's Minnesota, you understand, saying that was merely race we're talking about. They actually take that case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Not, not a wise move, all things considered. And there's no way you're going to get the court even to listen to your case there. But there were a number of others from Pennsylvania, from New York, from Kentucky, from Washington State. A number of early efforts, they all got turned back. They went nowhere. So I, I detail this story in various ways. But we rapid forward down to just the past few years. And along the way, loving continues to come back in. And pieces of it get incorporated as central components of judicial rulings that begin to move one jurisdiction or another, at least toward what becomes then same-sex marriage. It's absolutely vital, the roles that, that uh, Loving played. Now, I didn't tell much about this story in my first book. That came out in 2002, right? I mean, Massachusetts, highest court in Massachusetts hadn't ruled yet. Vermont's had. Civil unions had come on stream, but hadn't gone beyond that. There wasn't much to tell. I didn't tell much. The new book I had to tell a lot. When I, when I was beginning to finish up that long thing that was going to be the prologue to the epilogue, two chapters I gave to the subject. And then a couple of books came out that I said, OK, I don't need to carry the full narrative burden. That's out there. Somebody's covered that. I can refer to that. So I can bare bones it and focus on loving in a way that is far more streamlined. And I did. Now, a few weeks ago, in fact, the day of the ruling back in June, I, I got a, a communication from the editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast. I hadn't published with the Daily Beast before. I'm not sure how many of you have. Um, <laughs> but this was on a Friday. By Monday morning, my 2,000-word piece was posted. It wasn't perfect. We still had to tinker with it a little bit. But no, I hadn't got one piece right because they'd misrepresented it. They hadn't got one thing right on the editing. They hadn't said who I was, and I thought kind of wanted that there too. <laughs> so we fixed all that, and I wrote up some stuff. 
that I liked a lot. And these next few paragraphs I borrow from that. Okay, so this is my thinking well after the book that we're talking about today went to press. But all of this is in the first two books. Chief Justice wrote, the freedom to marry has long been recognized as one of the vital personal rights essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. That's sexist. I mean, free women too, okay. <laughs> vital to. Essential to, not negotiable, not marginal. The court used very strong language in that case, but it also, when you read it carefully, very clearly tied it to race, that that was all they were talking about. The bundle of, of power that states have traditionally exercised over the institution of marriage, age of consent, first cousins, this is Virginia, right? Uh, all, <laughs> All kinds of things, those got left in place, as subsequent courts would often observe, that only race had been taken out of this bundle. So Earl Warren's court took away race out of the bundle, and now the court has gone on to remove gender identity as any kind of impediment to a marriage. Now, if we compare the two, and that was the burden of the question I was asked in this context, and it got me thinking in these terms, in some respects, loving, the loving litigation came at a substantially more advanced, more mature uh, stage of development. And that is simply looking at how many states had signed on to a regime that did no longer restrict marriage on the basis of race. In 1948, so shortly after World War II, the number of states out of 48 that still had such laws were, was, number was, states were, 30. You can't do that with 17 southern states. You can't do that. California was the first, and it was a big tower to fall. That was a big tree down. And the Supreme Court, four to three ruling, 1948, said, doesn't pass muster. The way we read the 14th Amendment, the way we read the law of the land, we can't do that anymore, it's gone. And state after state, even such deep south states as South Dakota, <laughs> got rid of their venerable laws, leaving behind the solitary proprietorship 17 states, that's all there were. Now it was 2424 when the Lovings got married. That's down from 30 to 24. It was down to 17 when the case was argued before the court. It was 16 by the time the case, by the time the court ruled in Loving. Maryland, now think about this. Maryland actually repealed its law. This is a law that dated back to the 17th century. Maryland had initiated what I call the anti-miscegenation regime. Maryland had put it out there that if a white woman marries a black man, and by definition at that point, the black man was going to be a slave at that point, in that place, she will immediately become a slave and her children will be slaves. And that law was enforced for a very long time. Maryland, that had led the charge even before Virginia, in 1691, even before, decades before. Maryland repealed it. What had happened to Maryland? Well, there is a city of Baltimore. There was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. There was legislative reapportionment because the court had ruled on yet another issue of great import in the early 1960s. This combination made it possible for a black female member of the state legislature to propose a bill that got enacted to get Maryland out of that mix. That took place shortly before the Loving ruling came down. It went into effect June 1. So what's that, 11 days before the Supreme Court ruled? So at that point, we're at 16, Virginia plus 15. Um, 
In that sense, I think that loving came along at a much more tour point. It was a lot easier to say time for, to get rid of the outlier states, mop up, make the uniform, nationalize this right. Um, but the recent ruling in, in the same-sex cases, in Obergefell versus Hodges, in a sense came at a much more mature time, its own self. Because the Lovings, you remember, were subject to that term in imprisonment. There's been no such penalty hanging over same-sex couples, whether they could marry or not, since the year 2003, when the Supreme Court spoke in an earlier case, a prelude, you could argue, readily to the most recent one. So from that perspective, much less was at issue. Not in any way to diminish how much still was. We just finished talking in some detail about can you get a license, can you hand property on, all the kinds of things that come with the rights of marriage. Um, but less was at issue in that profound sense of actually losing your freedom to be up and about and free to run around. Now I want to think about, I want to do two more things. At some point I'm going to run out of time, but since I can't see a clock, I think I have three more hours. <laughs> so the two things I want to do, I want you to think with me about some of the things that we can come away from the loving story with. I keep wanting to rephrase that, the story of the loving, so it doesn't get confused with the film. And then I want to come back to the epilogue. We return to where I began. Okay, so the South. Where's the South? I have students at Tech who for years now have known they don't come from the South because they come from Northern Virginia. <laughs> but one of the hazards of being a historian is you beam into the past and you get frozen there and you're not sure that there's any other place or time. And for me, the South is precisely those states that still had those laws on the books as of the beginning of 1967. It's precisely the same states, the same 17 states that still had top to bottom segregated systems of public schooling on the day before Brown versus Board. Precisely the same. So it's not like you have to mix and match and figure, well, there's a fuzzy margin here. I'm not sure which way it's the same 17 states. But people always want to talk about the South and they never tell us what they mean by it. So we don't know what they're talking about. Okay. The former slave states, don't you love that one? That's, that's when historians get caught in a time warp. It's, 19, it's 1860, and they're thinking about whether Maryland went one way in the Civil War and Virginia went another, or Virginia split. But I, when I think about the former slave states, I think of Massachusetts and New York, all the original 13 states. So it's easy to get confused about what we're talking about. But let's leave that behind and do some real stuff. How unique a place was Central Point? It was said at the time the case was in the courts and soon thereafter, Central Point is this unique place on the planet. Nowhere else in the world could Richard have looked at Mildred and seen marrying material. Right? And yet how many dozens of couples whose stories I told appear and tell the court and a whole lot of others as well in the latest book. These people clearly didn't see race as a major impediment to their falling in love and marrying and forming a family and actually staying together for an extended period of time, long enough maybe to become great-grandparents, but who's counting? Central point to me is every place, potentially every place. And while it's an extremely special place to Richard Loving and Mildred, whether she was Jeter or Loving, that was their special place. There were lots of special places. Central Point was not unique, um, but it gets at my next point about states' rights. And states' rights is always carted out as a deflector shield projecting 
against federal intrusion of authority, right? But I don't see it primarily in those terms. Judge Bazile would have seen it in those terms, and I don't. What I see is state power imposed upon the residents, the citizens of a state, without any countervailing authority to intervene, to get in the way. We depend on our state governments to protect us in our life and our liberty and our property. And where was the state government of Virginia when the Lovings needed a friend or just to be left alone? So states' rights has a very different face on it when we look at it in these terms, projected downward rather than outward. What else do I have? Interracial marriage, that's not a thing. It's a construct, it's a definition. Virginia kept changing its definition. Virginia's definition never was the same as Georgia's or Mississippi's. They all had different ones. So the laws against interracial marriage and the laws that were thrown out by the Supreme Court ruling in Loving versus Virginia were not all of a piece. Nor did these states ever stay, stay true to the faith that they got it right and they're gonna stick it that way. Virginia, it was one-eighth black to be black in the colonial period. Then across the long 19th century, one-quarter would do. If you're one-quarter black, you're black, but if you're anything less than that, you're not. The one-drop rule of black racial identity is a 20th century invention. And Virginia inaugurated it in 1924, Racial Integrity Act. Very shortly thereafter, the great authorities in both Alabama and Georgia, but nowhere else said, hey, that's a great idea, we'll do that too. Actually, Oklahoma had come earlier. Oklahoma had done this really weird thing where Indians are white unless they have black ancestry. Everybody's white unless they have African ancestry. Everybody is. Everybody is. So Virginia kept changing the rules. Any place could. State power. Uh, let's see now. So Tarakishi, one of my favorite people, he was a Japanese-born kid in Texas in the early 20th century, played football in the 1920s for Texas A&M College of White School, as I remember it. He could marry anybody in, in, in uh, Texas except an African-American. In Virginia, he could have married anybody who wasn't Caucasian. Where do you draw the line? Who draws it? And what are the penalties for picking it wrong? Uh, and then there's that matter of right racial purity. You know, a lot of people out there who've studied this far better than I can tell us that if we track our genealogical, our family tree back very far, eventually, eventually we show up in Africa, all of us. So what's of African ancestry mean? <laughs> Some years ago, the great historian of science, Stephen Jay Gould, came to campus at Tech. And in the biggest auditorium we have there, he told his stories, and in the aftermath, one young man in the middle of the audience stood up and he had this plaintive question. He wanted to interrogate Stephen Jay Gould. Couldn't he realign his facts in such a way that his great, 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 greats didn't come from Africa? <laughs> and Gould assured him that he was doing the best he could by the evidence he had, but he just couldn't draw the family tree in any other fashion. Okay, so of African ancestry is itself this marvelously problematic construct. <laughs> We're all crazy. <laughs> I mean, trying to think of these things, trying to get your head around these things, one after another, these constructs just drives you mad. As most people who know me will tell you, it happened a long time ago in my case, but, and here I am trying to bring you along by introducing you to some of these complexities. <laughs> Mildred, when she died, was a black woman. Now, we know she was black because the state of Virginia had said she was black. And she never denied it, she was black. So 
colored becomes Negro, becomes black, becomes African-American. And what you have there is the one drop rule of black racial identity avidly embraced by everybody on the planet, including every historian and journalist you ever ran across. Mildred declared herself an Indian. She said, I am of Negro and Indian ancestry. What are we to think about this? Here is the iconic woman in the supreme irony of her post-life. She gets to be the one person on this planet who more than any other took race out of the equation as the way to identify somebody with the kind of life-changing, prison-imposing power to contort people's lives on the basis of their race. She more than any other took away from state governments the power to do that kind of thing, and she can't even identify herself now. <laughs> so here's my thought on this matter. Walter Plecker, don't mention his name in the presence of Native Americans in Virginia, right? Walter Plecker, one of the key proponents of the Racial Integrity Act and the chief enforcer of it in the long public life that followed in his public capacity, he would be aghast at what the Supreme Court of the United States did in 1967, and yet he might take comfort in the fact that there, his rhetoric rules. He lost the battle of the courts, but he wins the war of the rhetoric. His language lives on. It's been changed over. It's still a binary world, and somebody else gets to decide who you are. Great. Civil rights, political rights, social rights. Historians of Reconstruction know that that was an absolutely central way to distinguish activist descendants of that generation in the 1860s. In the 1960s knew that they were all the same, they were all inseparable, they were all crucial, and they all came under the category civil rights. But it's a false construct to project onto the 19th century the notion that everybody agreed to that. Because otherwise, how could we explain that six of the seven, six of the seven original Confederate states repealed or their state courts overruled or both any laws they had against interracial marriage? For an extended period, no such laws prevailed. That that was primarily a northern phenomenon for a period. Is that weird or what? And what I especially like is not only that judges and legislators believed that all the rules had changed on race, which turned out to be true only for a time, but it was true for a time. So did all those citizens who did not see race as the great impediment as to who they should see as marriage material, right? They went off and got married, and some of them got busted, and some of them took those cases to court like the Lovings did, and some of them won. Some of them didn't. Some of them spent 10 years in the state penitentiary or 10 years on the convict lease system. But they knew they could do that. It turned out they were wrong, but they didn't make those distinctions that often get imposed. What else do I have for you? I got one more, I think. And then we'll get to the epilogue before Paul turns off the, or Sam turns off the, the mic. <laughs> Government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln, Gettysburg, 1863, 100 years before Mildred Loving wrote her letter to Bobby Kennedy. Now, Lincoln was expressing a hope. He was expressing a fear. 
His rhetoric suggested that this is what was already in place and was in jeopardy of being lost. What I see is this had never been in place and was in promise of coming on stream. If we don't treat that all as one word, you know, separate but equal is one word. If we don't treat of, by, and for as one word, if we treat them as separate prepositions, then what we have here is government of some people and by and for other people. And that's the horror story for the people on the of category. And what Lincoln voiced was the dawning of an age where it was just possible, perhaps, to bring into alignment those three prepositions. So the same people who would be subject to the rules that they were passing would be those who made it, and no escape. We agree on what those rules are, all right? It has taken an extraordinary struggle over a great many years by a huge number of people to bring into relative alignment those three prepositions. Who did it any more than Mildred and Richard Loving? bringing the case that they did. I like that. So now the epilogue. Promised we'd get there eventually, right? First thing I saw before I ever got to Caroline County for the funeral was that the Cedar Brooks funeral home had an electronic bulletin board, a messaging system, right? You, you could leave memorials behind. You could put up testimonials for the world to see. I'm one of the people who saw them. And I took them all down. I love them. Every one of them I'm going to share a few with you. So some of the things that people had to say at the time that help us understand perhaps how a lot of people who, when she died, saw her and how we might see her. From one family in Florida whose members had spoken to Mrs. Loving on numerous occasions, they said, who knew this private woman was carrying on a secret conversation with extended people we didn't even know about? Her strength and fortitude, this is their language, to persevere and stay true to her heart despite huge obstacles, shows that she is truly an American icon for civil rights in America. Mildred's name will be synonymous in the history books for generations to come as a true pioneer toward creating a colorblind society. From a writer in Woodbridge, Virginia, came the statement that she did not know personally Mr. or Mrs. Loving, but I feel I owe them both a deep gratitude. My husband and I are an interracial couple as well and are growing stronger and stronger each day going on 19 years of marriage. How many people can say that? As my mother once told me, my husband is the best thing that ever happened to me. This from a woman who grew up at the time that the Lovings were busted and who at that time would have believed, as Judge Bazile did, that this is not appropriate behavior. From Glen Allen, not so far away, came a similar note that it was their strength and courage that allows me to have a wonderful life I have today with my husband. It was mostly women writing in about the death of this woman. That was striking. Mostly, not by any means only. From Roanoke, my part of the world, or at least over toward it, I guess I owe my whole life to your mother. I too, this is clearly a message to the kids, I too live in Virginia, and I did not know until I read your mother's obit that it was against the law to marry outside of your race here. Well, I have been with the same wonderful man for 30 years, and I guess I owe it all to her. Wish I had known of her before she passed. Just wanted you to know you are in my prayers. Here's another. Because of their courage, my parents were able to marry in Virginia in 1968. My mother black, my, mother, my father white. My parents truly had a love story of a life, a love story of a life, and my father was tragically taken at a young age, but my mother never remarried, pledging her love only to my father. 
Other voices came from everywhere. Georgia, your mother made it possible for me to love and marry who I choose. Louisiana, your fight has made my marriage possible. From Florida, my husband and I would probably not be together had it not been for Mildred's effort to make interracial marriage legal. From North Carolina, because of the lovings, my husband and I can also be married here in the South. And some wrote with recognition that though I did not take the loving decision to open the door to their marriage in their home state, nonetheless, it freed them up too. Here's someone from New York writing, I cannot imagine living in a country where my husband and I could not freely move as a married couple, yet that could not have been the case had not Mildred Loving and her husband protested an unjust law. Three scenes. One on the road from the church, that is to say the auditorium at the high school that Mildred Loving had gone to, to the cemetery, to St. Stephen's Baptist. The most striking occurrence I saw, this was truly amazing, the procession passed the home of the Sparta Volunteer Fire Department. And out in front, a fire truck, its lights blazing, three men, apparently white, standing there at attention as the vehicles came by. It turned out that Peggy's son, Mark, Mildred's grandson, was a volunteer member of the fire department there, and the trio were paying tribute to the local hero and the cherished grandmother of their friend and colleague. At the cemetery, after a bit, suddenly I saw five people drumming and singing as a Rappahannock ritual accompanied Mildred's passing into the spiritual world, the spirit world. The three men sat drumming and singing. The two women stood behind, also sang. When they had concluded, one of the two women, the chief, came over to the rest of the crowd by the stone and said, some people might deny Mildred loving her heritage, but she had always been and would forever remain a member of the Rappahannock Nation. Afterwards, I went back into town to Bowling Green, stopped by the courthouse and the skanky old jail that Mildred had been terrorized in for several nights, no longer in use. And there's a monument out there with language to the effect that Mildred Loving, who along with her husband Richard, helped strike down laws prohibiting interracial marriage in the United States. It took a tremendous effort, two of the people in the party told me about their sustained efforts to get that language put on that monument, but there it was and there it remains. Now I'll wrap up with a few final testimonials. Go back to the electronic bulletin board. Again and again people said things like this. From Bedford, what a beautiful love story, Mildred and Richard together again. From Richmond, real nearby, can't no court system separate them. That's my favorite. Can't no court system separate them now. And from Maryland, much the same. Now no man or court can ever break that union. From Wisconsin, Mildred is now with her true love and no one can keep them apart. Richard and Mildred will love forevermore. And from North Carolina, rest well, peaceful warrior. You are now reunited forever with the love of your life. Thank you. Sir, an important and timely story. Uh, my question is, you spoke of states, many states that had uh, uh, such laws, such racial integrity laws. Uh, how vigorously were they enforced? 
and particularly as uh, white military veterans, for example, came home with Asian spouses? I love that question. The rules clearly varied. And I didn't tell you about the California law, where it was not a crime to be married interracially by whatever definition in California. You couldn't get a license. But if you took the train up to Seattle, Washington State had no such law. You could get married there and bring the marriage back. So the crime part of it wasn't there, but you'd still be subject to all the potential civil liabilities, right? You, there still could be all kinds of problems that might come along. So states varied even as to whether they criminalized to whatever they defined as, as interracial marriage. Um, but the laws were pretty uniform in, in criminalizing it and putting serious penalties attached to any violations. The question as to how often these were enforced, that's a fabulous question. I know someone who's taken up the story and pursued a series of questions, uh, cases where such cases came from the courts, and they, she tried to find out in each case what was happening in the local community. What was it that was held back as a potential weapon brought into play only when you really got seriously unhappy with somebody, right? And Mildred voiced the notion, Richard did too, about how we never knew who fingered us, right? So Hirschkopf mused about the fact that Richard ran a racing car operation with two men of color and that maybe the judge had a racing car himself and Richard said, beat him. So who knows about these things? I mean, one answer to the question is clearly these laws were not always enforced. There's no question about this. You could have people who lived forever and ever and ever and suddenly the law hammered them. Or someone who paid the penalty, then came out and the next census shows me this is in the 19th century. Now they've got two more kids than they had the last time and no one appears to be bothering them anymore. So it was a, a tremendous patchwork, not only of laws, but of enforcement. But that last question about military personnel, I love it, it's fabulous. And nowhere can I find anything in the literature about such families' experiences. Does anybody ever, does it occur to anybody this is an interesting question? But here's a story. While the case is in the courts, while the Lovings are still contesting for their freedom, a young man who grew up in South Carolina, he Caucasian, Having come out of the Navy, or maybe still in the Navy, not sure, but he met in Hawaii a young woman of clearly Japanese ancestry. They get married in Caroline County, and they live to this day in Northern Virginia. Now, so I muse in the book, does, does he get a buy because he's not a local guy, or because he's in the military, or a veteran? Does she get a buy, do they, because she's not African-American, and again, not local? So we don't know. What we do know is that a lot of people got busted and a lot of people didn't. Or it took a long time for some to get busted and others who had been, then they got left alone. So this is extraordinary. It, it's one of the functions of terror, you could say, that you're subject to a rule that maybe you know about, but you never know when it's gonna hit you. And what Loving versus Virginia was, take away that terror, no longer was it possible. Nobody come and get you in the middle of the night. How about that? Yeah, you made me curious about uh, when you uh, gave Judge Potter's decision. Uh, I don't know anything about the law, never been involved in it, uh, but I do know one thing. I know that uh, courts have jurisdiction and they've been given the uh, jurisdiction by some authority. 
And apparently, to the best of my knowledge anyway, the Supreme Court gets its authority from the Constitution. And I was curious what, uh, while Judge Potter felt that uh, he had gone as far as he could, as far as the authority that was given to him under the Constitution, there were other judges that felt differently. And where did they get their claim that they could go beyond that particular jurisdiction? Well, uh, two or three possible answers. First of all, it's Justice Potter Stewart, okay, who's, who, who's putting in this concurring opinion. Uh, you could argue it's partly dissenting and partly concurring, but it's not presented as a dissenting opinion. That's my construct. Um, he took the approach that I suggested judges typically do in cases where they only need to go so far to make the decision. And so that's as far as he saw it as imperative that he take the ruling. What his eight brethren all saw was that, in fact, that did not begin to touch the case. For example, the Lovings would, if you simply took away the criminal component that related to race, still be an unmarried couple living in Virginia and would have been potentially subject to indictment for cohabitation, right, that had nothing to do with sex. That for, to take that as a kind of a short answer to the question, the whole panoply had to be brought down. So these marriages, it could not be a question of doubt as to whether they were valid marriages, regardless of whether there was a criminal component. So in some respects, Loving versus Virginia is not written as thoroughly, as well, as cleanly, as elegantly as it might have been, but it's a powerful statement that gets the job pretty well done. And they were, they were ruling in a way that they thought, it's time we got rid of all of this stuff. And to their mind, I think it's fair to say, they saw this as an essential part. It was a whole package that came before them, and they had to deal with it all at once. So it wasn't just the criminal components. It was anything that had to do with race and marriage and law. Anything had to go. I'm still confused. Yeah. I, I don't see where... I, I, the question I really had was that uh, the... Uh, the authority that they get is from the Constitution. That's right. where, did, where did they then, what portion of the Constitution did they use to make oh, well, their kind of thinking or decision? Okay, I, I misfired in one respect. Let's bring the 14th Amendment here for centerpiece. The Equal Protection Clause is quite clear in the 14th Amendment in its language. Exactly how you translate that and apply it to a given situation is all that's at issue. And what they saw was that there's no way to read the Equal Protection Clause or, in fact, the Due Process Clause. They hammered on both sides. These people are being denied their freedom without due process. Their authority as members of the Supreme Court of the United States is to take their best judgment as to what the law is and apply it to the situation at hand. And what the Lovings did was bring them the occasion that permitted them to do just that. That's the best I can do for that now. Would you comment on the recent voting restrictions that Virginia, Texas, North Carolina uh, have all recently passed and what's going to happen uh, about them? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> the 15th Amendment is still in play. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is still in play. And a fairly recent ruling by the US Supreme Court does not provide a whole lot of room for comfort that restrictions that get embellished in whatever fashion are readily uh, to be dispatched. But we don't know. I mean, this is one of those things where the, the music is always playing. Uh, so you find a new way to restrict access to the electorate. 
you can't do race, so you use poll tax. You use some euphemism. You use something else. If court says that's cool, then everybody says, oh, what a great idea. Let's do that too. And that was in the 19th century. Things haven't changed that much. Judge Bazile's world lives on.